Spirit proclaimed its safe arrival on the Red Planet. Squire's Odyssey Like sailors rounding Cape Horn, scientists and engineers willingly put themselves in the capricious hands of fate for a reason. To put life on our planet into context, either as a singular phenomenon or as an exemplar of a universal process, Steve Squires, the principal investigator of the rover's scientific instruments, had been trying to get to Mars for 17 years. The Cornell University professor has something of a wunderkind reputation. He did his Ph.D. from start to finish in three years and, during the 1980s, became an expert on half the solid bodies of the solar system, from the icy satellites of Jupiter to the volcanic plains of Venus to the water-cut highlands of Mars. But he came to feel that his career was missing something. The real advances in our business come from people who build instruments and put them on spacecraft and send them to planets, he says. I worked on Voyager. I worked on Magellan. I didn't think of those missions. I didn't design those instruments. I didn't calibrate them. I just parachuted in at the end, scooped up some data, and went off and wrote a bunch of papers. It was a very enjoyable, satisfying way to do a career in a lot of respects, but I did feel I was profiting by the efforts of others for just once, and this is going to be just once. This is an experience neither to be missed nor repeated. For just once, I wanted to do one where at the end I could say, you know, okay, that was something that I helped make happen. In 1987, Squires put together a team, built a camera, and proposed it to NASA for what became the Mars Pathfinder mission. It had the wrong dimensions and was disqualified. He also joined one of the instrument teams for the Mars Observer spacecraft. Shortly after it lifted off in September 1992, its booster rocket fired to break out of Earth orbit, and then the fragility of spaceflight intruded. The radio signal went dead. Sitting in the auditorium at launch control, Squires put his head in his hands and said, I think we may have lost it. I think we may have lost it. Forty minutes later, the spacecraft reappeared. It vanished for good when it got to Mars the following year. In 1993, Squires and his team proposed another instrument package and were again turned down, as they were developing yet another set of plans for a full-blown mobile geology lab called Athena. News broke that a meteorite discovered in Antarctica might contain hints of past life on Mars. The hoopla re-energized Mars exploration. The Pathfinder mission in 1997 showed what a rover could do, and in November of that year, NASA gave the go-ahead to Athena. Squires found himself the leader of 170 scientists and 600 engineers. Two years later, NASA lost the Mars Climate Orbiter and the Mars Polar Lander. Although Squires' team was not directly involved, the fiascos convulsed the entire Mars program. In response to an investigation panel, which put the blame largely on a caustic mix of underfunding and overconfidence, the agency increased the budget for the rovers. They eventually cost $820 million. Redesigned and refocused, Spirit and its twin, Opportunity, finally blasted off last summer. To get through something like what we went through, you have to be optimistic by nature, Squire says, and to be prepared for every eventuality, you have to be pessimistic by nature freeze-dried planet. As the two Mars exploration rovers, MERs, were coming together, Martian science went through an upheaval. The Mariner and Viking missions of the 1960s and 1970s revealed a cold, dry, and lifeless world, but one etched with remnants of past vigor. Delicate valley networks from the distant past and vast flood channels 
from the intermediate past. Researchers expected that when new space probes assayed the planet, they would find water-related minerals, carbonates, clays, and salts. Over the past six and a half years, the Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Odyssey orbiters, bearing duplicates of the instruments that the ill-fated Mars Observer carried, have looked for and detected essentially none of those minerals. They have found layers of olivine, a mineral that liquid water should have degraded, and yet the orbiters have also seen fresh gullies, old lake beds and shores, and an iron oxide mineral, gray hematite, as opposed to red hematite, otherwise known as rust, that typically forms in liquid water. The planet holds extensive reservoirs of ice and bears the marks of recent geologic and glacial activities. Scientists are more baffled than ever. There's a fairly raging debate about how this environment of early Mars differed from now, says Mark Golenbeck, the JPL planetary geologist who led the Pathfinder science team and is a member of the Mars Exploration Rover team. MER is really the first attempt to go to the surface and try to verify what the environment was really like. The notoriously risk-averse Viking planners sent their two landers to the most boring places on Mars. To be fair, you'd probably do the same if you had a $3.5 billion easily toppled spacecraft that knew almost nothing about the terrain. Pathfinder, though bolder, was really just a test flight. Beyond a desire to study as many different rocks as possible, Golembeck's team didn't care much where it went. Spirit and Opportunity are the first landers to visit places that scientists actively wanted to go. From orbit, Spirit's new home, Gusev Crater, looks like a lake bed. It has fine layering, delta-like deposits, and sinuous terracing. And it sits in the northern end of Maidam Vallis, one of the largest valleys on the planet. Opportunity is gone for the gray hematite, which is concentrated in Meridiani Planum, Phil Christensen, a planetary geologist at Arizona State University, recently studied the topography of the hematite outcrops and concluded that the mineral forms a thin, flat layer, as though Meridiani, like Gusev, was once a lake bed. Only on the surface can these hypotheses be tested, for instance, because wind cannot transport sand grains larger than half a centimeter, the discovery of bigger grains would imply some other agent of erosion, possibly water. When hematite crystallizes in lake water, as opposed to, say, a hot spring, the chemical reaction often involves the mineral gothite, which spectrometers on the rovers can look for. Piece by piece, datum by datum, the rovers should help resolve how Mars can be both so Earth-like and so alien. Mars under the Earthlings. About three hours after Spirit landed at 11.30 p.m. Pacific Time on January 3rd, the data started to pour in relayed by the Odyssey orbiter. For observers used to earlier missions, when images slowly built up line by line like a curtain grazing on another world, it was startling. The first pictures flashed up on the screen, and Gusev Crater leaped into the control room. The main camera sit on a mast 1.5 meters tall, so the view closely matches what you'd see if you stood on the planet. But it still takes some getting used to. Jim Bell, a Cornell scientist who has worked on the color panoramic camera PanCam since 1994 said, One thing that I learned through all the testing we did is when you experience a place through the eyes of a rover and to go yourself, it's pretty different. The sense of depth is very different because you're looking at this flat projection of the world and there's nothing in it for human reference. 
There's no trees, no fire hydrants. You're missing all the cues we all have around us to tell us how far away things are. Even so, the first images have an eerily familiar quality, showing rocks, hollows, hills, and mesas. It's beautiful the same way the desert is beautiful, aerospace engineer Julie Townsend says. It's a beautiful vacantness, the beauty of an undisturbed landscape. But space exploration is like plucking the petals of a daisy. It works, it works not, it works, it works not. You never know how it'll end. Early morning Pacific time, January 21st, controllers were preparing Spirit to analyze its first rock named Adirondack. They instructed the rover to test part of the infrared spectrometer, and Spirit set the robotic equivalent of Roger. But then it went silent. For two days, controllers tried nearly a dozen times to reach it. When they finally reestablished contact, the situation was serious. Though in no imminent danger, Spirit had rebooted itself more than 60 times trying to shake off a fault it could not diagnose. Pete Theisinger, the project manager, says, The chances it will be perfect again are not good. But he adds, The chances that it will not work at all are also low. And that, in the business of planetary science, is a victory. George Musser, a staff writer, was a graduate student of Steve Squires in the early 1990s. For updates on the Spirit and Opportunity missions, see www.sc.